you need a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and take it out and find the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. You are allowed to use your table of contents in this sermon series, especially. A lot of the books we're looking at are short books. Habakkuk is three chapters. There's some notes in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along there, you can do that as well. In this series called the Book of the Twelve, we're looking at the final books of the Old Testament. We're looking at books that in our faith tradition we know as the minor prophets. In the Jewish faith tradition, these 12 books are sort of lumped together and included uh, in one sort of conglomeration known as the Book of the Twelve. And so this morning we're on number 8 of 12, Habakkuk. And I think, as I studied this week, I think that Habakkuk is probably my favorite of the 12 minor prophets. If I just had to pick one and say, which one is your favorite to study, to think about, to, to work through, to wrestle with even, I think Habakkuk would be that book. I'm going to give you some history this morning. We've done this every week. I've sort of laid out a little bit of the background, especially this morning for thinking about what we're reading in Habakkuk, understanding just a little bit of the background of the kings and the nations and the exiles and the empires and all the stuff going on that's just assumed when you read this book. I think it helps make it a little bit more clear. So here we go with a little bit of history. Habakkuk preached after the exile of Israel. That happened in 722, and he preached before the exile of Judah, which happened in 586, both of those being B.C. And so the timeline we've looked at each week maybe is beginning to look familiar to you. The united kingdom, the unified kingdom was Israel when Saul was the first king and then David was the next king and then Solomon came after David, all of the tribes together under one, one monarch. Then the kingdom was divided. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam took Judah. Jeroboam took Israel in the north. They split the kingdom in half. All of the kings of Israel up north were wicked. Almost all of the kings of Judah down south were wicked. And eventually the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into exile by Assyria in 722. The Assyrians marched on the capital city of Samaria, conquered the city, took the people, hauled them into exile in Assyria. The same sort of thing happened in 586 when the Babylonians marched against the southern kingdom of Judah for their wickedness, for their idolatry, conquered the capital, Jerusalem, and then hauled the people into exile in Babylon. Now what we're talking about in Habakkuk, we're going to put him right in between these two exiles, right? The northern kingdom has been taken, and he's talking about the fact that eventually the southern kingdom is going to be taken. And I'm going to give you one more sort of timeline visual to help you make sense of this. I'm going to put on the screen the last five kings of Judah. These are not the kings of Israel up north. These are the kings of Judah down south. And these are the last five. Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakin, and Zedekiah. Habakkuk, we would fit right up under the reins of Josiah and Jehoahaz. That's when Habakkuk lived. We're right on the very tail end of, of Judah's history. And Habakkuk falls under these kings. And this is also on your outline. Judah experienced a revival under Josiah, followed by a turning away under Jehoahaz. And you just need to file this away in your mind that Habakkuk lived through that. He lived through this revival that Josiah led. And it was a great revival. The Old Testament talks about all sorts of neat things that Josiah did. They repaired the temple. It had been in disrepair. 
while they were repairing the temple, they found the book of the law. It had been lost, and they actually brought the scriptures out and read the scriptures. When they read the scriptures, they realized, we haven't been doing any of this stuff. And they went around, and they smashed all the idols. It was not optional. It was gather up all the idols and smash them. We are not worshiping idols anymore. And the text says they even celebrated the Passover. They hadn't done that for decades and decades and decades. And they read the the law. They read the scriptures. And Josiah said, we should be doing this. Why aren't we doing this? And they had this great Passover celebration. All these great things. Things looked like they were turning around for Judah. And then Josiah dies in battle, and Jehoahaz takes the throne, and it all goes back to exactly what it was before. All the things he worked so hard for, the the changes, the reforms, the revival, the awakening, all of it, it's like Jehoahaz just flushed it as soon as he took the throne. And Habakkuk lived through that. He lived through all of that. That's where Babylon comes into the story, and this is the last little piece of history I want you to know. Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, attacked Jerusalem during the reigns of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And I'll put those names back up and show you where Nebuchadnezzar comes. It's sort of like a rolling invasion during these last three kings. Jehoiakim, then Jehoiakim, then Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, they would march against Judah. They would subjugate the people. They would take some of them into exile. And they would leave, and then after a while, Judah would sort of bow up and say, hey, we're not going to pay your, your taxes or your, your tribute anymore, and they would bow up, and then Babylon would come right back, and the same thing would happen. They'd conquer the next king and send him out and put another king on the throne. And it happened several times right here at the end of Judah's history. And Habakkuk was looking forward to all of that. He experiences the revival under Josiah. He sees it all get washed away under Jehoahaz. And he knows by the time this book is over, he knows what's coming for God's people in Judah. If we wanted to summarize the book in one sentence, this is how I would summarize it. Habakkuk is a book about wrestling. It's a book about wrestling. We're not talking about pro wrestling. We're not talking about amateur wrestling, collegiate wrestling. We're not talking about sumo wrestling. We're not talking about any other kind of wrestling you may be thinking of. We're talking about philosophical wrestling. This is a guy who is trying to reconcile ideas in his brain, and he doesn't see how they can both be true. He's trying to make sense of these two ideas, if I could just say it broadly. How is it that God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, how is it that he can be a good God... And yet so much evil and suffering exist in the world at the same time. How can both of those be true? How can, I, how can I wrestle or reconcile these two truths in my brain? That's what Habakkuk is wrestling with. Now, a couple of things just about Habakkuk. His name means to embrace or wrestle. And when I say it means to embrace, I don't mean like, oh, I miss you, have a, let me have a hug. I mean like to grab somebody violently. To to bear hug them, if you want to use that term. That's what his name means. And he's taking these philosophical, theological ideas, and he's grabbing hold of them, and he's wrestling with them to try to make sense of how they can both be true. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah, just to sort of put him in the context of the Old Testament. These two guys lived about the same time. And he possibly came from a priestly family. There's really not anything in the text that says he was a Levite or he came from a priestly family. But when you get to the end of the book and you read the poetry that comes in Habakkuk 3, some Bible scholars and Bible commentators say this sounds like something that a priest 
would write. And we're going to talk about that later on this morning. I do need to tell you this before we jump into the text. I told you last week that Nahum and Habakkuk are very difficult books to sort of accept. The message is not so hard to understand. The message is pretty plain. You can make sense of what they're trying to communicate. But to take in some of the ideas and some of the things that you see in these books can be very difficult for folks. And so last week we saw some of the language that Nahum used as he described what God was going to do to his enemies, the Assyrians. And you read some of those things and you say, well, that doesn't sound like something that God would do. But Nahum is challenging the way that you think about God and the way that I think about God. Habakkuk doesn't really have anything as shocking as what we saw in Nahum, but what you find in Habakkuk is sort of a setup to get an answer to a question that you probably really want to be answered, and you may not get the answer that you expected. You may not get the answer that you wanted. And so that's what we're going to try to work through this morning as we look at Habakkuk. The interesting thing about this book is that it's a conversation. The job of the prophet in the Old Testament was to listen to God and then turn around and speak to the people. And to begin it with, you've read it many times in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says to you. I have heard from God and now I am delivering his message. It's as if he is speaking directly to you. That's what you expect from a prophet. What you find in Habakkuk, at least at the beginning, is a conversation. Habakkuk asks a question to God, and God actually gives him an answer. And then he actually follows it up with another question, and God gives another answer. And we're going to walk through that conversation right now. Habakkuk's conversation with God. It starts with question one from Habakkuk, and the question is this. Why are you overlooking the sin of your people? Why are you overlooking the sin of your people? Look in the text, if you have your Bible open, Habakkuk chapter 1, and let's just read verse 2, 3, and 4. Here's the question. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Do you understand what he's asking God? He's lived through a an amazing, a tremendous revival under Josiah. And then he watched all of that get flushed away. And he's looking around and he sees all the sin and all the evil and all the idolatry and all the wickedness and all the filth, all the yuck taking place in Jerusalem and in Judah. And he's looking at all that and he's saying, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you change things? He remembers. It used to be really good under Josiah. Things were completely moving in the opposite direction. Why are you just doing nothing When all of this wickedness is taking place in Jerusalem, I look around, I see it every day. Have you ever felt like that in our society? You look around and you say, God, what in the world is going on? How can these headlines be true? How can the the news stories be real? 
Just when you think it can't get any worse, it gets worse. You're not the first person in history to have those thoughts. You may think, oh, but it's worse now. It's way worse now. But Habakkuk in his day said, I I can't believe it. How could it get any worse? And God, why don't you do something about it? Why did he let it get so bad after it had been so good? Why did he just remain silent in the face of such evil? That's a question that human beings have wrestled with from the beginning. God, why are you silent when it seems like you ought to say something or do something about what's going on? There's a Bible scholar named John Feinberg, and I like the wisdom that he offers at this point. He says, the silence of God in human affairs then in Habakkuk's day and now has ever been difficult to understand. It's hard to think about it. But it doesn't mean there's not an answer. And it doesn't mean that divine wisdom is incapable of coping with the situation. I realize that you experience the exact tension that Habakkuk is wrestling with. God, it's so evil. Why don't you do something? Why are you silent? And Feinberg is reminding us the same thing we're about to see in Habakkuk. It's not that God is unaware. It's not that he's uninterested. It's not that he's incapable. It's a difficult thing to wrestle with in your mind, but don't just check it off and say, well, God must not know, or God must not care, or God must not be able to do anything about it. That's where God responds to the prophet, and here is the answer to his question. God's answer is that he would send the Babylonians to punish Judah. That's what he was going to do about it. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1. We're jumping down to verse 5 and 6, the Lord's answer. Habakkuk asks his question. Here's the reply. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days. You think I'm not doing anything. I'm doing something. I'm doing a work in your days. You would not believe it if told. In other words, this is not the answer you're looking for. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Have you ever asked someone a question just to get an answer that you didn't expect? Maybe you've asked someone a question only to get an answer that you didn't want to hear, where you've almost said to yourself, I kind of wish I hadn't even asked the question. That's Habakkuk. He looks around his nation and he says, God, Why don't you do something about all this wickedness? And what he has in mind is, hey, that revival under Josiah was great. Could you you send us another Josiah? Could you send us another king to to smash all the idols up and turn things around? And what God says instead is, oh, I'm going to do something. I'm going to send the Babylonians to smash your houses to the ground. Let me just try to bring this as close to home as possible, as close to home as I know how to bring it. Imagine you're having your quiet time, right? You wake up early, or maybe you like to do it in the evening. You're reading the scriptures. uh, You're trying to meditate on God's word. You're talking to God. He's spoken to you in his word, and you're talking back in prayer. And you've, you've been wrestling with just the current state of affairs in our country. And you've looked at all the things going on and the craziness going on, and you think, oh, God, it doesn't seem like it was like this years ago or decades ago, why is it so bad? And you just say something to God, almost just off the cuff, just impulsive, like, God, 
When are you coming back? When are you going to send your son back? When are you going to do something? When are you going to change things in this country? And maybe what you have in mind is, like, we need a revival in the United States. We need awakening in the United States. We need God to come and change our hearts. You ask this question, and then imagine that God actually answers you. And the answer is not, well, I'm going to send a new Billy Graham. The answer is not, well, there's going to be a a third great awakening in the United States. What if the answer from God was, I'm going to do something. I got something planned. You wouldn't believe it if I told you, so I'm going to tell you and see if you believe it. I'm going to raise up a group of terrorists out of the Middle East. I'm going to send them to your country, and they're going to burn every church in the United States to the ground. That's what I'm going to do about it. You would say, whoa, I wasn't talking about that. That's not what I want you to do. Like the chill that that may send up your spine, that's the chill that went up Habakkuk's spine when God said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to send the Babylonians, the people who march through the earth just smashing homes and cities and communities and nations. I'm going to send them against you. So question one, why are you overlooking the sin of your people? Answer one, God says, I'm going to send the Babylonians to punish you, which leads to another question, question two from Habakkuk. How can a holy and righteous God use a wicked nation like Babylon? Habakkuk wanted another answer. Wait a minute. How are you going to use those people? They're the worst of the worst, and you're going to associate yourself with them? Look what he says in Habakkuk 1, verse 12 and 13. This is his response to the Lord. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked, pay attention to this, When the wicked, insert Babylon, swallows up the man, insert Judah, more righteous than he. You ever asked your kids or your grandkids a question and you've asked the question in such a way that you lead them to the answer that you want to hear? Right? It works with your kids and your grandkids. It doesn't work with God. That's what Habakkuk is trying to do with God. He's setting this whole thing up. And let's give him a little bit of credit. He goes back to a pretty good baseline. He goes back to the holiness of God, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're the holy one. Your eyes are too pure to just look on evil and pretend it's not happening. You're the holy one. How in the world are you going to just do nothing when the wicked guys, Babylon, come to destroy the righteous people, Judah? And do you see that at that point he's completely lost focus on reality? The first question was, oh, look around my nation and all I see is wickedness and sin and idolatry. It's terrible. But then he compares himself to Babylon and all of a sudden he describes himself how? Righteous. That's the danger in you comparing yourself to your neighbor. You can always find somebody that looks worse than you. And Habakkuk did it. Look, when I, when I compare Judah to Babylon, we look pretty good. How are you going to use a wicked nation to punish a righteous nation? But if he did the right thing and if he compared Judah himself 
Jerusalem to the Holy One, he would be back at his first question, God, we're wicked people. I see it every day and you don't seem to be doing anything. You can't have it both ways. You can't at the one time confess to God how sinful you are and then out of the second breath that comes out of your mouth, try to tell God how righteous you are, but that's what Habakkuk is doing. Why do you look idly at sin? God says, well, I'm not going to do it forever. I'm going to send Babylon. And Habakkuk says, you're too holy to use those people, those wicked people, those bad people. How is all that going to work? And here's God's final answer. This is the part of the conversation you may not like. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Look at Habakkuk 2, verse 2 and 3. The Lord answered me. This is what the Lord said. Quote, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits the appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. All of that is sort of poetic, uh, prophetic language for God saying to Habakkuk, I want you to write this down so that down the road people can look back and see your prediction, your prophecy. And it's not going to happen today, and it's not going to happen tomorrow, and it's not going to happen next week. It may seem slow in coming, but this is what's going to happen. And look at verse 4, the most important verse in Habakkuk. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's talking about Babylon, and he says, these people are wicked people. You're right about that. Their soul is puffed up. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They're, they're godless. Their soul is not right within him, but, Habakkuk 2.4 The righteous shall live by his faith. If you want to put yourself in the category of the righteous man, Habakkuk, you're going to have to live by faith. At this point in the conversation, God simply didn't feel the need to explain himself to the prophet anymore. So he didn't. Right? He's engaged in one Q&A. Why are you sitting by idly overlooking the sin of your people? And God says, I'm not, I'm not idle. I'm doing a work in your day, and I'm going to send the Babylonians. And he says, how, how is that going to play out? You're holy, and they're so terrible. How, what in the world is going on? And God just looks at him. He doesn't give him any more answers. He just says, Habakkuk, the righteous is going to live by faith. You just need to trust me. My job is running the universe. And your job is trusting that I know what I'm doing at my job. Not questioning, not asking questions, not second-guessing, not making suggestions. The righteous is going to live by faith that I know what I'm doing. This is a lot like Job, right? Where Job questions the Lord and he's wrestling with evil and suffering and all of these same sorts of, of big philosophical issues. And when God finally shows up to Job, he just doesn't remind him of or he doesn't answer any of his questions, what he does is remind him of who God is and who's not God. Job, Job, I'm God and you're not. So start acting like you're not God. And in a nutshell, that's what God says to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, I've told you what I'm going to do. Write it down so that everyone knows when it happens that I predicted it through you. Put it on paper. And then I'm just going to need you to trust me. The righteous will live by faith. I'm not going to answer all of the questions that you have. I just want you to trust me. 
So we jump into this conversation between Habakkuk and God 2,000 years later. And the question is, what do we do with this? What do we take from this book and apply to our lives? I want to give you four thoughts. Number one, recognize the absolute sovereignty of God. Just stop and reflect on it and admit that it's real. Don't try to qualify it. Don't try to explain it away. There's some things we read in the Bible. We read over it so quickly because it's so familiar to us. We're church. We're Sunday schooled. We're VBS. We've heard it all before. But look what it says in Habakkuk 1.6. God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The most powerful people on earth are under my command, my control. I'm raising them up. They're not doing this on their own. I'm behind that. This is in Habakkuk, but it's really throughout the Old Testament. It's even in the New Testament. This idea that all of the nations of the earth, for all their power, for all their glory, for all their plans, for all their boasting, for everything that they think that they're doing, God's behind it. He raises nations up and he brings them down. He uses nations for his purpose, and then when he's done, he's done. Habakkuk is reminding us that God is completely, absolutely sovereign. He does whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. He doesn't need our permission or blessing, and there's no question as to whether or not it's going to happen or not. He doesn't say to Habakkuk, well, let me tell you what I'm cooking up. I'm going to do my best to use these guys right over here, the Babylonians. And my plan is, if it all goes according to plan, he just says, this is what I'm going to do, and it's going to happen. He's absolutely sovereign. You couple that with the second thing on this section of application. We've got to recognize our responsibility before God. Yes, he is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. We don't put any limit on that. That's part of what it means to be God. To be sovereign. He's not sovereign. He's not God. At the same time, we are truly and really responsible for our actions before him. And the example of this in Habakkuk is the Babylonians. God says, I'm going to raise these people up. I'm going to send them against you for punishment. And the thinking person may work it out in their brain and say, well, it sounds like they're just kind of like a tool, kind of like a puppet, like they don't have any say in it. Like, how can God blame them for what's about to happen? God blames them for what's about to happen completely. He says in Habakkuk 2.4, their soul is puffed up. Look what he says in Habakkuk chapter 2. I want you to see these woes, five woes. We'll just read them quickly. Habakkuk 2.6 Woe to him, to Babylon, who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Talking about Babylon. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. He's talking about the Chaldeans. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. They're responsible for that. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing awake and to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all in it. Five woes against these people. And two truths that are very hard to reconcile in my brain and in your brain that you can't let go of either one. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. If he says he's going to raise a nation up and punish another nation, he does it. 
It's not difficult for him. It's not hard for him. He's sovereign. Truth number two, we're responsible before God. You're really responsible. And what God is saying to Habakkuk is this. I'm going to use the Babylonians to punish Judah. And then I'm going to punish the Babylonians for what they did to Judah. And I know what your brain is thinking because it's the same thing my brain is thinking. Well, that doesn't sound fair. Poor Babylonians. And God is saying to Habakkuk and he's saying to me and he's saying to you, the righteous person is going to live by faith. I'm not asking you to sort all this out in your brain. I'm just telling you that this is true. God is sovereign. And I'm telling you that you're responsible. They're both true. And I'm just asking you to believe it. You don't have to figure it out. God's not asking you to be God. He's not asking you to run the universe. He's not asking you to be second fiddle. He doesn't need a co-pilot. He's just saying, have faith. Trust me. So that's number three on your notes. What are we going to do with the book of Habakkuk? We're going to live lives marked by faith. We're going to live lives marked by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. In the context of this book, God is saying to the prophet, you just need to trust me. I'm not going to answer all of your questions. You just need to have faith. What's fascinating is that when you turn to the New Testament, Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted verbatim, word for word, three times. Three times. We're not going to look them up. You look them up on your own. You check what I'm telling you. In the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, Paul quotes this verse. And in both of those places, Romans 1 and Galatians 3, what Paul is saying when he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 is this. You cannot earn righteousness before God on your own. You can't be good enough to earn your way with God. Don't try to put the bad people, the Babylonians over here, and then prop yourself up as if you're righteous. You can't, that's not how it works. It didn't work that way for Habakkuk, and it doesn't work that way for you. The only way that you can have righteousness before God is if you have faith in Jesus. That's the only way. You have to have faith. You have to have faith that we just saw expressed in the baptisms. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I'm unrighteous. I believe that Jesus died for me and that when I put my faith and my trust in him, he takes my sin and I get his righteousness. That's the only way to be righteous before God. The righteous will live by faith. You also find it quoted in Hebrews 10. And the author of Hebrews is saying this. God isn't asking you to have a one-time, say it out loud, do the right thing up there, check it off, you're done kind of faith. He's asking you to have an enduring faith. Walking in it day after day after day after day. That's why when we baptize these people, we ask them the question, are you going to follow Jesus? This what we're doing in the water is not the end of anything, it's the beginning of everything. From this point on, you walk by faith. Faith is not just what you do so you can get dunked. Faith is what you do every day when you walk with the Lord and you say, I'm not God, you're God. I trust you to run the universe. I know that I'm a sinner. The only way I can be righteous with you is if you give me the righteousness of your son and you count my sin paid at the cross. That's the only way that I can live and be righteous is through 
faith. So if you want to take the book of Habakkuk and you want to apply it to your life, you have to live a life marked by faith. And last, number four, don't close your Bible because we're going to read. Live lives. We are going to live lives marked by worship. Worship. Take your Bible and look at Habakkuk 3. I just want to point out a few things at the end. We won't read all of it. You can go back and read some of it. I just want you to to notice a few things. That the book ends with a song. Or if you wanted to use the Old Testament word, you could say it ends with a psalm. I know it's not in the book of Psalms, but that's what he's written at the end. Notice what he says in Habakkuk 3.1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shigianoth. It's a big, long Hebrew word that just rolls off the tongue nicely. It's a word you find in the book of Psalms. I believe it's Psalm 7, to describe the tune that you use to sing the song, right? Be like me saying, okay, I'm going to give you this poem, and you're going to sing it to America the Beautiful. You would know the tune, and you would take the words and use that tune, and that's what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, I'm giving you the words, you're going to sing it, and here's the tune. Look at the end of Habakkuk 3.3. You see the word, maybe down, maybe in italics, maybe offset to the right, the word Selah. You find that word all the way through the book of Psalms. And it's sort of a word that when we read through the scriptures, we don't always read it out loud, but the idea is almost like a rest, a stop. Maybe a musical rest or a musical stop, but more than that, a stop for your heart. It's the author telling you, don't rush through this. You need to slow down and you need to think about this. Before you read any further, why don't you just meditate on what what you just read in the Scripture and think about it and be intentional about what you're reading or what you're singing. Look at the very end, Habakkuk 3.19. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Apparently, you're supposed to play it with guitar. I don't know. That's what Habakkuk says. But he's giving it to the choir master and he's saying to the choir master, this is not just for me to sing. This is not just for you to sing in your devotions. This is for the people of God to sing when they gather together. Because Habakkuk realizes these issues that he's wrestling with about who God is and how we can be righteous and how he works among the nations of the earth, these are big questions that all of God's people wrestle with. And his conclusion in chapter 3 is a song of worship. Yes, you're to have faith, Habakkuk 2.4, but the end of the book is a song. You're to be people who worship. You're not to be people who just come to the Scriptures and you say, okay, this is what God's like. I don't have to like it, but I'll accept it. He wants us to be people who come to the Scriptures. We see what God is like, even when it may challenge our assumptions or go against what our culture tells us about God. And He wants us to be people who celebrate it, who rejoice in it, who worship God for it. This is not just, well, I'll... I'll go along with this, I guess. You've proved your point. This is the things that you're telling me about you are good, and you deserve to be praised for them. Look at the very end of the book. Habakkuk 3. It ends with worship. And I just want you to understand, it's not worship because God answered all his questions. God didn't answer all his questions. It's not worship because God ended up agreeing to do it Habakkuk's way. He didn't. 
It's just worship because God is God. That's the kind of worship that we're being called to this morning. Not worship that's based on your circumstances or your healing or your victory or your outcome or your resolution or whatever you're asking God to do. Not, not worship based on, well, God has answered all of my questions and sort of put all these things in a nice neat box where I can make sense of it. Just worship for God because he's God. We'll read these verses and we'll pray. Habakkuk 3.17 Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, He makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray.